Okay, well, it's 2020 now. Isn't that exciting? Uh, so, hmm. Oh, cloud. This might get a bit rambly. I'm probably just going to stream of consciousness right now that I'm in the sunshine and, you know, just chilling out for a bit. So, and, and also I don't have to keep my, my fingers stuck on a button to, to keep Snapchat recording. So, that's always nice. Also, seems like my my uh, my Barry White voice has uh, gone back to normal after the concert. So, uh, you know, uh, well, say lovey. I'm sure we'll get another chance at that sometime. I told Trish that I uh, would potentially be up for maybe one dance party per month. You know, I don't want to overextend myself. Um, but, uh, yeah, she took that okay. So, um, hmm. Old Cloud. So the thing with Old Cloud, yeah, as I mentioned, at the moment it's more of a bag of tricks than an actual structured thing. I basically want to take it from being kind of a, a shack that I nailed together and then, you know, out of out of sworn logs and kept adding to. I want to take it from that paradigm and to being something more like an actual... Uh, like a like a pyramid, shall we say? I mean, it's been through a few evolutions. It has actually been, well, almost six years now since I started working on it. It was it was kind of, uh, let's see, I'm pretty sure it was like the holiday holiday season of sort of coming into 2014. That was when I sort of first started playing around with it with the concept, um, so yeah, it's quite a while ago, and at first it was, um, just a few bits of Python code running on my laptop, um, and since then it's gone through so many iterations and evolutions, one of which, uh, the one that I most recently had tried to get it off the ground with, um, you know, around the whole 2016 horror show, um, the the thing was I just I was coming off the back of some contract work, but it had been driving me out of my mind, um, and. Celia and I were on the rocks, and Felicity and I were um, living together, um, and I had made a decent amount of money. I think, I think we're probably talking late 2015 here. I'd made a decent amount of money uh, contracting, um, and this actually represents the most recent time that I, you know actually had decent resources behind me. Uh, I'd made quite a bit of money out of contracting, writing software for uh, the local Yellow Pages company, who I just called Yellow. Um, and I was flatting with Jared, who I'm sure you've heard of, um, just down the road from there. So my commute was a literal five minute walk, which was pretty cool. Um, and they were paying me like nearly $90 an hour um, for my awesome abilities as a software software maker. Um, but I hated it. I was so bored. And everything we did, like the whole, the whole place was in a kind of a political um, upheaval. Um, sort of one of those quiet, political upheavals, but basically, actually, Yellow is where I met Trish, um, and Yellow is also where I met someone called Kate Westwalker, who I think I've um, mentioned, I might have mentioned a while back um, that um, I was working at Yellow, we'd had an intern program, and um, I ended up becoming friends with one of the interns who I'd previously kind of not paid a lot of attention to any of them. But we got talking about Kindles, you know, as, as a group and she's like, Oh yeah, I've, I've got one. Cause I was considering getting one. And she's like, yeah, have a look at mine. Give it a, give it a, 
give it a try, see what you think. So I kind of scroll a couple, she hands it over and I just sort of, I don't even remember whether I scrolled through any pages. I don't think I did. I just read the page that was on the screen. I'm like, are you reading Snow Crash? And she's like, yes, I am. And I'm like, we're going to be friends. And we have been ever since. And um, she became my protege. Uh, I basically resolved to do everything I could to fill her head with knowledge. And to be honest, I probably spent more time um, feeding information to her just over like, you know, slack chats and you know sort of um helping her with things and, and guiding her down various paths of learning and she was very very receptive to it i probably spent more time doing that than i did doing my own work you know at that time and so yeah i i, uh, I started uh thinking of her of her as my protege um nowadays um she lives in San Francisco. She's living the dream. Um, she works for a pretty well-known in, in geek circles uh, company called Atlassian. They mainly make development and project management tools. And yeah, she works for them, lives in San Fran. She's living the dream. She's living the exact dream that I um, would probably be living if I hadn't have, uh, you know, um, participated in the creation of a, a new new human life form by the name of Felicity. So anyway, that's Kate. Good for her. Um, she's actually currently in New Zealand, but unfortunately she can't quite manage to make time to catch up with me, which is a bummer. But, but at least I always have somewhere to crash and send friends, so she's told me. Uh, so that's cool. Um, anyway, back to the story, such as it was. Um... Oh, yeah, the whole yellow thing. I was tangenting off into that. Just trying to remember why. Yeah, yeah, yellow. Mm. Yellow was always a real blind leading the blind kind of situation. Like when I started there, they actually had... Um, actually, I said it always was. That's not true. When I got there, it was actually... Um, they were heading in the right direction, or at least they'd re they'd settled on the right direction to head in, and they were starting to make moves in that direction, which was really, really good. That's literally why they hired me, was because um, they had this project that they wanted to, you know, start pushing forward, and they needed people with my skills. So, you know, smart move, yellow. Um, but, you know, after I'd been there for... Ooh, about three years total in two separate stints. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can't can't bring myself to do the math right now. But um, uh, yeah, they really started to lose their way. Basically, it was a situation where certain people seemed certain people who you know had had been and were executives at this business kind of started to realize this thing was potentially just a cash cow for them and started to see it as something that instead of trying to um, ensure the success of, started seeing it as something to start siphoning money out of, um, which was very unfortunate and more than a little bit shameful. Um, and it's a long story, which I'm not going to go into too much at this point because I've got other things that I want to talk about. But, um, yeah, hmm. suffice it to say that I left there, um, or left in terms of um, when my contract came up for renewal, I decided that I wasn't interested in renewing it, and I telegraphed that ahead of time to my manager, and so, yeah, when my contract was um, expired, we just got together in a room, he's like, you don't really want to stick around, do you? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of don't, you know, so long as things for all the fish. Um, so, yeah. So then all of a sudden I was out on my own and had all this money in my pocket. So I started trying to make this orbit image thing work. And um, I spent a lot of time and a lot of money because I'd already... Um, you know, I, th this had been kind of my side 
it wasn't even really, I mean, I wasn't even, at first I wasn't even trying to commercialize it. I was actually just trying to, you know, I'd, I'd latched onto something I found interesting and I was just kind of pulling the thread to see where it would lead. Um, and uh, one of the aspects of this was that I had sort of been building some experimental hardware. So you're familiar, I mean, I think I've even, I don't think I've showed it to you in, in operation, but I have um, talked about it, the concept of the, the turntable. Um, and, uh, you know, you've probably seen pictures of it the turntable that I'm using if not then when I go inside I'll show you um, but that cost me thousands of dollars and I had to get it specially sent over from Australia what I may not have mentioned is that prior to spending thousands of dollars on that I had actually built um, multiple generations of attempts at a turntable system the first one, um, yeah, like a digitally controlled turntable systems. Um, the first one was, was alright. Um, it was what was it? Oh, I should have taken a lot more pictures of it to be honest. Um, I don't know if you know what an Arduino is, but it's like a little. Um, um, it's like a little mm, microcontroller system, which is designed for, you know, doing little projects mostly. So an Arduino basically takes a fairly commonplace microprocessor and wraps a few things around it to make it sort of easier to work with. Uh, like for example, a um, USB interface. So you can plug the thing into a computer and upload programs to it. And the programs that you have to write for these things have they are by necessity have to be very very simple programs um, because this thing does not have a lot of processing power like it can't run an operating system it can only um, basically whatever program you upload to it is the entirety of its um, understanding of the world effectively you can write a program upload it to the Arduino, and as soon as the Arduino receives power, it will run the program you've written until the power is taken away. Um, you know, these things don't have to boot up. Uh, they don't, like, have to launch into Linux or anything. They just, they effectively are the program that has been uploaded to them. Um, so I got someone, got a, a business, found a business to laser cut a plywood disc for me um, and I got a wheel off a robot kit set that I'd had um, lying around and I uh, like a rubber uh, a wheel with a rubber tire on it and I attached that to a motor put the um, plywood disc on a turntable bearing which is a thing that you can get for about $15 from certain fairly specialized shops um, applied the uh, rubber <laughs> robot wheel tire to the edge of the, um, or maybe it was the underside, edge or underside, I can't remember, um, underside, let's say, well, uh, applied the rubber uh, tire to the plywood disc, which was, you know, had, had been screwed onto this uh, turntable bearing, and um, applied power to the motor and this thing would rotate. Uh, and the trick then was A, controlling the rotation so that you were getting regular intervals and B, um, controlling the camera so that you could have a kind of a rotate, stop rotating, trigger camera, rotate, stop rotating, trigger camera type of paradigm. That was the goal. Controlling the camera proved to be pretty straightforward because I managed to uh, solder together a little um, a little doodad that uh, effectively I mean I, I had to reverse engineer the because the, um, these cameras you know uh, digital 
SLR cameras have got a um, little socket on them that you can plug a um, uh, like a trigger trigger doodad into. So um, you, you plug in your trigger doodad and you know it basically gives you a button you can press away you know that, that isn't on the camera. So you've got a little cable a button at the end of a cable that you can use to trigger the camera. Um, so I had one of those because bear in mind this was a point when I had quite a bit of money in, in the bank in the business and I I wanted to um, yeah I mean I, I started this off while I was still at yellow and still had the money actually coming in um, and so I'd I'd bought cameras a camera and various lenses and various attachments including this trigger thing so I got a multimeter out and figured out how the electrically exactly what the um, camera trigger was doing and hence figured out how to trick the camera into accepting something I had built as a substitute for this you know professional Canon brand uh, trigger doodad um, and then I proceeded to build such a thing a little circuit that could plug into the Arduino and um, trigger the camera, figured out how to build it, soldered it together. Um, I remember the moment where I first plugged it into my camera and I was just basically praying that this, um, that I, that I'd done this right and that it wasn't about to fry my $700 DSLR, which admittedly is at the low end of a, a DSLR, but still $700 worth. Um, and it worked. It didn't work 100% straight away, but it didn't fry my camera. Um, and I did, um, you know, before too long, I managed to get it working properly. So between one thing and another, between that little um, rubber rubber tire and the motor and the Arduino and the program I'd written for the Arduino and my little um, camera um, plug-in control doodad and the uh, wooden plywood disc on the... Um, uh, rotator bearing and a bit a few bits of plastic tubing to kind of you know and, and clamps to try to you know sort of get everything in in the right place and all working together a bit of hot glue um it worked not brilliantly the um i mean it it, it worked in basic form and um the problem continued to be trying to get it to um accurately represent certain angles of rotation because I knew that I had to if I was gonna really make something out of this I had to be able to have it turn by precisely controlled degrees so that was not negotiable I, I the first generation I couldn't couldn't get it very accurate because all I could really do was um and I have a few ideas how to, you know, how to re reattack this problem if if I had the time on my hands to do it. Um, but all I could really do was to try to um, activate the motor for a certain length of time, to you know, sort of cause a, a certain duration of rotation. Um, and then try to circle back um, and, oh, that's right. I introduced like a calibration uh, procedure. So basically you'd, uh, I kind of remember if it was, I tried a few things. Um, I think I, I think I settled on magnets, uh, like having a magnet a magnet detector sort of underneath and then a magnet glued to the bottom of the the disc so basically this this disc would do a rotation um so that you know to, to calibrate it so that the uh so that the controller could basically go okay well one full rotation took this long therefore um 
if I apply the motor for this length of time, that's going to be a full rotation. And therefore, if I divide that amount of time by, say, for example, 72 is the magic number that I always use because that leads to three um, uh, to five degree increments, which five degrees times 72 stops is 360 degrees. So if I divide that duration of time by 72, then I'll get five degree increments. Looks good on paper. Didn't work in, in the real world. Um, that's one of the things I like about software is that you don't have to take physics into account. So that um, very, very simple um, idealistic approach basically didn't take into account um, any of the physics variables the amount of time that the um, that it would take for the motor to start up each time and the kind of the amount that um, of time it would take to, to stop um, the uh, slippage involved um, and, you know between the between the rubber of the motor um, uh, sorry the rubber of the tire and the the disc um, and any any number of physical variables um, that I just didn't have a way of taking into account. So I kind of abandoned ship on, on stage one at that point, which was a shame because it was, I mean, I feel there's something there that could be resurrected, but you know, um, onwards and upwards, right. Um, and started work on stage two, which I'll tell you right now was an expensive failure. I I had um, so okay. I didn't start on stage two until I finished it yellow, and figured that I was going to try to commercialize this whole thing. So I was like, well, what do I need to do to take this to the next level? Obviously, I need something that can give me the kind of the accurate um, rotation that I'm looking for. Um, and I tried to, tried to I, I designed this elaborate contraption. Uh, I tried to build it out of wood, uh, plywood again. Um, oh. <sighs> I could go on for hours about the trials and tribulations involved in that, and maybe someday I will, but I kind of want to get back to the subject at hand. Um, let's just say that when I tried to build it out of wood, I discovered that wood is much harder to work with than I realized. And um, a kind of a key, I, I wanted something that could be easily disassembled for portability and storage. Um, and so, and also because I was in my mind was the idea that maybe I could, you know, if I, if I could do this thing as effectively a kit set, then maybe I could kind of spread the concept around the world. Right. Which still is a dream I have, but part of the design in order to make this thing able to be conveniently disassembled and reassembled, it basically needed to be able to accept, uh, screws. So, um, like, not just like, you know, the kind of drill type self-tapping screws that you can sort of, uh, you know, just apply to a bit of wood and have them kind of put themselves in there by virtue of the fact that they are pointy and um, can just kind of drill their way in. But not those type of screws, but rather machine screws, because you had to be able to take them out put them in, take them out, put them in, you know, assemble, disassemble, reassemble countless times. So they needed to be machine screws, which are, you know, the type that are designed to be taken out, put back in, but are also have the characteristic of um, needing to have a hole already there for them. So you may already be perceiving a bit of a gap here between the fact that I was building this thing largely out of plywood, but needing to be able to put metal screws into it that really can only can only interact with metal. There's no way to put a um, thread, uh, as they call it, into um, wood. 
to be able to accept a metal machine screw. It just can't be done, except maybe with very, very hard hardwood. But I was using plywood, which effectively, I don't know how much you know about the subject of plywood, but essentially it's layers of like wood, uh, like from from a tree interspersed with layers of wood chips that have been glued together and um so the bulk of it is provided by the by the wood chips but the kind of the, the cohesion is provided by the um uh by the by the actual wood wood so i thought well let's see how am i going to do this so i had to i i had ordered the laser cutting because i was getting a, a company to laser cut these things you know pretty pretty pricey um I thought if I could get the, some volume going, then potentially, um, you know, like if I could put this on Kickstarter and, and, and get a bunch of people to order kit, uh, kit sets, then maybe I could get a laser cutter or something on my own and, and do that part myself or, you know, find some way of reducing costs by trading off against volume. Of course, that never happened. But um, so I'd ordered holes. I'd ordered these... Um, things with holes this was this is the plan so I thought well okay I can get metal dowel I can drill holes in that and then I can put threads into those holes and then I can glue the dowels into the holes that are laser cut so I'll have I'll have them cut laser laser cut holes small holes in this plywood contraption and I will hand cut hand drill hand thread and then by hand hot glue in to these holes these drilled dowels now if you're thinking to yourself that sounds extremely over complicated Tune in next week for the next inciting installment of The Origins of Orbit Image with Alan Roweth. And now in other riveting Orbit Image related content, we're going to discuss the architecture of Orb Cloud, where it came from, where it is now, and what's coming up. So it's quite complex to try to discuss some aspects of the whole 2016-2017 thing without discussing all aspects of it, or at least without being able to assume a knowledge of all aspects of it. Um, these stories will come out over time, but uh, right now I'm just going to try to focus on the orbit image and orb cloud related ones. So last time I was trying to commercialize orbit image, was um, in the time leading up to the point at which I basically decided I had to face reality um, around the middle of um, 2017, which is what led me to uh, sign on for a permanent role at Trustcodes. Up until that point, um, I'd been trying to get a few things off the ground, one of which was Orbit Image. Um, I'm sure that anyone who's been successful in business would probably say that you can't be sort of trying to do multiple projects at once. You have to pick one thing and focus on it. And um, I was still very much in the midst of dealing with uh, with my mother's death and a bunch of, bunch of other traumatic happenstances. Um, and um, yeah, couldn't focus on one thing. But... Um, at that time, Orbit Image, Orb Cloud, well, Orb Cloud didn't exist. It was called Orb Image. So if you if you take the words Orbit Image and glue them together and pull a bunch of letters out, you get Orb Image. And that was what the hosting solution was called at the time. Now, Orb Image, um, I kind of thought that, you know, like if there was a large image hosting website called Imgur, then, um, you know, which is still around to this day, 
then I could get away with calling this thing Orbimg. But, you know, you can't sell a brand that you can't pronounce. So, anyway, um, at the time, that was, that was the state of the art as far as my hosting solution went. And what it was was a Linux virtual machine with some software on it um, arranged in such a way that um, if someone would try to access um, you know, an, an orb, as they're now called, um, that it would assemble that for them. There was some caching. You know, uh, but ultimately the the biggest constraint was the fact that this whole thing was just running on a hard drive on a computer. Um, well, a virtual virtual machine, which, by the way, was a really overpriced one, hosted in uh, Hamilton, uh, well, nearby, near Hamilton, in Waikato, New Zealand. Very overpriced. Um, but also very, very constrained because... The source material for all of the orbs had to be hosted on this one computer, this one virtual machine, and it only had an eight gigabyte disk, which is really when you're trying to do what I'm trying to do, it's not very much. So um, I kind of rapidly found myself bumping up against the limits of that, um, if not, you know, physically in a literal sense, then conceptually. Because I knew that if I wanted to be able to have a whole lot of customers, that this wasn't going to scale. You know, the way things were in that architecture, it was basically like, well, if I get a bunch of customers, either I'm going to have to pay increasing amounts to get the storage expanded um, on this computer, um, or I'm going to have to get a bunch of computers, um, you know, and, and have them running in parallel. Either way, it's going to turn into some form of nightmare and it's going to be overpriced. It's going to be expensive. You know, my, my costs will scale at the same rate as my uh, hypothetical revenue. So ultimately, I could see the equation wasn't going to work. Um, and ended up putting the thing on the back burner because I had, you know, as, as previously mentioned, I had to go and get a real job. Um, so this all kind of got parked. And I came back to it at some later point. I'm not sure when. I could probably find out. It's probably worth, worth finding that out. Um, when I came back to it at a later point, which I believe was you know, while I was working at Trust Codes. It seems like it sounds like the sort of thing I would do over a Christmas break or something like that. Um, obviously this whole concept had had a chance to percolate for a while and I realized, well, I'm gonna have to take this thing to the cloud. I'm gonna have to make this into a proper cloud application if I want to be able to have it scale in the way that I obviously need to be able to have it scale in order to make this into a potentially successful business concept. So I basically took the whole thing apart and started from a principle of using um, the cloud services offered by Amazon. Now, one of the cloud services Amazon has is called Lambda. Well, there, there are two key cloud services here um, in the current architecture of Orb Cloud. One is called Lambda. The traditional way of running an application is to have code on a computer and run that code on that computer. You know, I mean, simple, right? Straightforward. What Lambdas allow you to do is have the code effectively just exist in the cloud. There's no kind of notional computer sitting around waiting for a request to come in to run that code. Instead, what happens is that when someone requests that code to be run, a 
computer gets picked from, you know, whatever servers Amazon has available, um, which are countless, you know, there's, the, the number is, I mean, there must on some level be a finite number of them, but effectively it's just the cloud. So when a request comes in for your code to be run, the cloud finds a um, piece of hardware to run it on. That piece of hardware downloads the code, runs it, sends the result back to wherever the result is to go back to, and, um, you know, Bob's your uncle, as they say. So you don't have to host a server. You don't have to maintain a server. You don't have to pay for the hosting of a server. You just have the code sitting around waiting to be run, and then when it's time to run it, your cloud provider worries about how it's going to be run and you pretty much just you pretty much just pay pay for it by the minute that the code is running as opposed to as i was the minute that the machine is waiting around waiting for someone to to need it this is also um i mean this is great for for keeping costs under control because you're only paying for what you use but it's also great for scalability because if you're running a Linux box and that Linux box is waiting around for requests, but then suddenly you get real popular and suddenly that Linux box is getting an absolute ton of requests, you may very um, plausibly find yourself uh, getting beyond the scope of what that Linux box by itself can handle. And so then if that happens, you kind of have to re figure out how to react to that situation. Do you weather the storm and wait for your popularity to pass? Or do you... Uh, try to beef up that box, which can, you know, potentially um, lead to downtime, but also mean that you might end up paying for something bigger than what you need if, if your popularity was a flash in the pan, like as we used to say, if you got Slashdotted. I don't know if you know about Slashdot or remember it, but there was a website called Slashdot, and it was kind of one of the first websites that that kind of got to be a really popular aggregator of content. Um, it was mainly for, you know, geeks, you'd go to Slashdot and see what was going on. But the thing is that, um, any website that, that got linked by Slashdot would suddenly have a lot of people descending on it. Um, and it came to be known as getting Slashdotted. And these days the, probably the equivalent would be Reddit, but of course Reddit is, is much less of a linear stream. It's much more of a kind of a tree of, of different interests, but yeah, back in the day, if if you got posted on the front page of Slashdot and you weren't ready, you'd be feeling the pain. Um, but the thing is, Lambda does away with all that because instead of having you know all of your all of your popularity kind of being funneled through one one computer, which may or may not be able to take the strain, and you may or may not gain benefits from um, reacting to that, or it might, in many cases, make more sense to just weather the storm if you don't think that this popularity is going to continue. But the thing about Lambda is because you, as the application developer, don't have to worry about where, about what hardware your code is going to run on, your cloud provider worries about that. So if you get a few requests a day, that's fine. You're only paying for a few seconds a day of processing time. Whereas if you suddenly get millions of requests coming in, like say some content you know, blows up, goes viral, um, and you're suddenly getting millions of requests a day coming in, you don't have to worry about it. Your cloud provider worries about it. The whole thing just automatically scales to whatever is being asked of it. So that's pretty wonderful. Um, I mean, you, you basically are just paying for an increased number of processing time, uh, increased volume of processing time, but you're not actually having to provision new hardware and figure out how the hell do I survive this onslaught of traffic. It's just kind of tackled for you. So that's one advantage of Lambda. Um, well, actually, I think I've now enumerated several advantages of Lambda. So basically, that was one piece of the puzzle. The other key piece of the puzzle was, is called S3. S3 is essentially an infinite hard drive that you can store any data on. An infinite 
cloud attached hard drive that you pay for storage on at a rate of two cents per gigabyte per month. Now, if you cast your mind back to my earlier um, exposition on the subject of the machine that I was running for the, you know, uh, that I was maintaining for um, uh, for OrbImg, you know, before before I cloudified it, um, that had eight gigs of disk, and that was a hard limit. If I wanted to add more, I would have to pay through the nose for more. Um, and, you know, and, and that would be a monthly, monthly fee. I had to really know how much more I wanted because, um, if I added more and then later on decided I wanted still more, that was going to end up being inconvenient, um, a time consuming administration task, um, as well as, you know, getting more and more expensive. Um, whereas... For the same amount of storage, that eight gigs, I'm now paying 16 cents per month for that amount of storage. Um, except that now I can scale that infinitely too. I can just keep on throwing more and more stuff because, you know, uh, because I'm all on the cloud now, I can just keep throwing as much as I want at this and it's just going to keep on taking it in, you know, I, I can't run out of space. So you can see how at the time I was like, well, these are the, the benefits that I can gain by re-engineering this application. And, and the server was costing me $50 a month, which is in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, value for money, it's basically outrageous. Um, I could have been getting the exact same server for $7 a month on Amazon. But I was kind of hesitant to do it just because I had history with this vendor and I'd been using their services for years and uh, I knew that their support was good, but I I was broke. I couldn't even afford to keep it going. So ultimately, um, I think I started by building a new Linux box which would still be the kind of the central hub um, of the processing aspect, but then it was it was using S3 for storage, but then I migrated further. And so now, where we are now, is that I've got S3, the infinite hard drive, handling the storage for all cloud. I've got Lambdas doing um, all the tasks of processing uh, you know, single frames, which are actually stored as zip files in S3, processing them um, into uh, the film strips that Orb Cloud uses on the front end, and um, a few other little bits and pieces of, um, of uh, you know, glue provided by various other uh, Amazon uh, web services, cloud services. Uh, so that's that's where we are now. At no point did I sort of sit down and go, well, this is this is how this should be structured. Uh, it was it was basically more of an evolutionary uh, approach that I took. I built the built the pieces I needed, um, you know, juggled things around, refactored things until um, effectively until the you know the jigsaw came together. Um, but it was kind of a case of not knowing what I was going to need ahead of time. I just kind of started started building it. And I mean, almost all the code that consists of it now is the exact same code that was running on the Linux box. It's just that the way it's been um, assembled is, uh, you know, had some slight differences to account for the shift onto cloud hosting. Um, but it's fundamentally the same. So the next evolution, the one that I'm currently contemplating and that I'm also, you know, have actually started taking a couple of steps towards is to essentially make a cohesive um, application out of, uh, out of, out of all cloud. So the cloud hosting 
a modern cloud host has a whole lot of different features and different aspects of um, application structure that I just haven't been using because it's kind of been a bit mysterious and haven't really known where to start to get my head around it. Um, Intervidip within a um, within a week of my starting at Vidap, um, I'd already been kind of pointed in the right direction as to, um, well, I mean, it was one of the requirements of the project that uh, that I was I was put on was we want to do this in this way. We want to um, to migrate these aspects of our business onto the cloud, and this is the tool chain we want to use to do it. And it's called serverless which is you know not a very imaginative name it's a very descriptive name but it's you know quite apt in that sense um so i had to learn how to use the serverless framework which is the exact piece of knowledge that i was missing in terms of how do i uh level up orb cloud into something that is not just a bag of tricks essentially um, you know, and I mean, as it has been a bit of a constraint on the continued development of all cloud, it's like, well, the deployment, um, uh, tasks involved in upgrading this are pretty convoluted, not necessarily very repeatable and not certainly not very conducive to, um, continued development. I mean, it's. It's basically a case of I, I have some scripts that, that do things like making a zip file and then I have to upload the zip file um, and I can do that from my command line, but then I have to log into the web-based console and click a few things and you know to kind of get the zip file to take. And it's just not very refined. Um, and if I want to be able to develop something that is uh, potentially something that I could sell um, not just as a service but also as potentially uh, like an enterprise edition where other businesses can can potentially have their own orb cloud like for example one of my um, one of my thoughts that I've had about how how I might be able to um, evolve this whole thing is that um, if I can get the whole 360 degree screenshot idea out there before Sony releases the next generation of PlayStation, for example, which is expected to happen kind of midway through next year. If I can get the next generation, um, sorry, if I can, if I can ingrain this paradigm of making 360 degree screenshots and sharing them on all cloud, um, via Kaleidoscope, into enough gamers, then big companies like Sony might actually take notice and say, holy shit, we need, we need to get on this. And if they decide they need to get on this, then they're going to come knocking on my door, potentially Sony, potentially Nintendo, potentially Microsoft could come knocking on my door, or I could go to them and say, hey, look, um, you know, this has been taking off. I built this. And um, I can make it possible for you to have your own um, your own um, your own your own version of it uh, based on the exact same software, which I'm you know still developing. Here, uh, sign here, and that'll be a hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, type of thing. Um, so if I can package this thing up as a cohesive application, then that whole paradigm becomes a lot more plausible plus also it just means day to day that i can much more easily fix bugs like the one i found today um much more easily uh you know release upgrades um kaleidoscope and orb cloud are, are kind of increasingly increasingly divergent um but for the one sort of unifying factor the, the little part of the venn diagram that that binds them together um you know, which Kaleidoscope has kind of been the main vehicle for the uh, evolution of that. But yeah, all cloud itself, 
I have been kind of neglecting it. So it's time that it got some attention. And at this moment in time, I am just a few days away from starting a new job that is going to be full-time right through January and is um, unclear what kind of hours it's going to be after that. But it may, you know, that the hours, I, 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 the way I perceive what they expect of me is that I will be responsive to their needs in terms of the number of hours they need me to do. So they have agreed to me being part-time, but, you know, I, we might need to kind of push the envelope on that a little if, for example, the project that they're putting me on isn't coming together quickly enough. So I may need to be reactive to their needs. So that makes me think I need to really pull out the stops over the next few days and, and try to get at least a handful of key things done uh, with Orb Cloud before I before I dive into data mine. So, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I'm at. So in our previous installment, I told the story of how I had been designing the various generations of the uh, turntable equipment. And we were up to the second generation and I was describing how um, the process that I'd figured out for basically constructing the, um, the, the turntable um, from the laser cut plywood parts was to um, hand cut metal dowels to size, uh, drill a hole down there, uh, down through their axis, um, thread that hole so that it could have a machine screw screwed into it because, and I, I did, I did search, but apparently, um, for whatever bizarre reason, you can't buy off the shelf, um, dowels, uh, metal dowels with a hole, a threaded hole you can through them. Seems like such an obvious thing, but I couldn't find them anywhere. And everyone, you know, all of like the, the steel, steel suppliers and steel wholesalers and, um, you know, whatnot that I, that I went to, they just gave me blank looks when I asked for that. But, you know, you'd, you'd think it'd be basic, but whatever. Um, so, um, cut those down to size, drill a hole down, uh, through them, thread the hole, um, uh, the, the whole, the whole bit. Um, and then that was just to, um, to get to the point of then trying to, um, glue them into the, into the holes that had been, uh, laser cut for them to go into. So, um, very, very convoluted process with a very high failure rate for every, uh, sort of 10, um, dowels or sorry, 10, for every 10 uh, lengths of a dowel, the lengths themselves were probably less than an inch. Um, so I had to, you know, accurately, accurately hex all of that for starters and then sand it down and then put it in a vise and apply the drill press to it. And um, even just to get to get that far to the point of having a drilled dowel, pretty much, um, I think it was about one in, one in, one in five made it, no, sorry, uh, out of every 10, five made it to that point. Um, so it was very error prone. Um, and then trying to glue those into the holes in the wood. I can't remember what type of, was, of glue I was using. I think I was trying hot glue. I think I tried super glue as well, but neither of them was very effective. Um, so basically, in the end, because of this incredibly convoluted process, it took about two days once I'd gotten the, the wood, you know, the laser cuts. Um, it actually took about two days just to assemble one um, turntable unit. And, um, and then when I would try to um, then do the kind of the on-site assembly process, not that there was ever any sort of site, customer site, to assemble on, but, you know, sort of doing it at my HQ, um, 
very quickly the 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 actual um the glue would give way that was holding the dowels in place so basically my whole my whole concept my whole design process had led me to the point of this basically unusable um super super overcomplicated um assembly uh which was just yeah no it just wasn't gonna fly so it was like well back to the drawing board so i did go back to the drawing board and i thought well if i need to be able to have this assembly you know on-site assembly process then the way forward is to use steel so i started thinking or at least metal um specifically aluminium was the uh the material that i settled on uh, i changed to a different laser cutting company which was much more local to me um because uh, that partly because of that partly because they had a better range of materials available and partly because um when i phoned up and asked if they'd be able to thread the holes for me like you know holes of a certain size they were like yeah no problem so i felt like that um fit a few different birds with the same seed as my uh, vegan friends in san francisco are fond of saying um so yeah so i redesigned the whole entire thing now one of the as i believe previously mentioned one of the major problems or challenges in the design was making it so that this thing could be um uh, able to report on the extent of its motion um so that for example you know i could i could dial up um a certain number of uh, points on a rotation and have it be able to actually accurately divine the um, distance between stops and hence be able to do its job um, and so the way that i did that and i can show this to you because i have this this contraption in my house somewhere um was basically uh, i tried to attempted to do that by having a kind of a series of um, gaps which light could pass through as a way of those being able to be detected. Um, and the whole thing essentially was a big, a big gear. So the, the platter itself, the idea was that uh, there would be a motor which would be attached to, screwed onto a bracket uh which was you know one of one of the items that was being laser cut i believe that was the uh, that and some of the other ancillary gears with the with a stainless steel part and the rest is aluminium um and the the platter itself yeah the big the big uh, the big rotating platter the idea would be that um you'd put a piece of uh probably again plywood um sort of would would rest on top of it but the kind of the, the mechanism itself essentially i had a big um uh, round gear with all these teeth um which was you know probably ooh, i want to say sort of 70 centimeters in diameter or something like that um not sure but um <clears throat> yeah so another gear would be on the motor the the gear on the motor would engage with the big um the big uh, platter gear and um rotate it that was the idea and so um you know i i uh i did all these plans meticulously in my cad software and once i was as sure as i could be that they were perfect i sent them off to the laser cutting company uh this is of course a source of great apprehension at this point because it's like well what if i've screwed something up um you know I, I i did everything that i could think of to ensure that it was right but there was still a possibility that it wasn't and that you know i'd, I'd send the designs off and they'd be wrong somehow 
and I'd have to um, tweak them again because you've got a bit more leeway when you're working with plywood, right? If something is in the wrong place, you just drill a fucking hole or, you know, um, you know, whatever. You can usually compensate for it. But if you're talking about aircraft-grade aluminium, it's a bit of a different story. So I send the designs off with a great trepidation and wait for them to get back to me. And um, they're like, yep, this, this is all good. I think there was a little bit of back and forth, just a couple of little tweaks of um, parts that they weren't immediately certain of from my design. Um, and yeah, so they they lasered it and I went to get it and they'd, um, they'd threaded the holes for me and it was great. And so I got it back to my HQ and set to assembling it. Now, um, I'd like to just take a moment to remind that the assembly process for the wood version with all the dowels, I think it took me the best part of two days, two full days, because this was, by this time, I'd, I'd finished up at, um, at my day job, and this was now my, this was now my day job, and um, I was paying myself from the money I'd accumulated, and um, yeah, so it had taken me about two days to assemble the wooden version, the metal version, I was able to assemble it like the first time assembly came together perfectly and it took about 10 minutes to assemble 10 minutes after after spending two days on the previous one this one took me 10 minutes and i was just absolutely over the moon felt so victorious um however when I uh, assembled the motor armature and, you know, started to, I'd, I'd finished the kind of the mechanical assembly. So then I started on the electronics part, which were all basically just waiting, ready and waiting because I'd already done all that. Uh, I just needed to pretty much plug it in and apply the power, which I did. And it was roughly then that I learned that this design that had been months in the making and, um, you know, at, at great expense. Um, when you'd switch the motor on, it would judder. So it would turn, the turntable would turn, but it would turn in a very juddery manner. It would be like... And so here's me imagining going out to client sites with this contraption and putting their, you know, um, valuable um, products on it and having it basically be like, do, 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 like it was about to fall apart every, with every, with every rotation, with every, you know, um, few degrees of rotation in between stops. It was just like it was, it was going to shake itself to bits. And I was absolutely fucking devastated at that point because I had, Spent so long trying to get this thing working, trying to get this thing together, and yeah, that was that was the point where it was basically like, oh well, shit, time to time to fucking give up on this aspiration of building your own hardware. Um, so yeah, I uh, I stopped. No when to fold them, you know. Um, and instead of spending a lot more time and thousands more dollars on raw, more raw materials to try again, <coughs> I thought, well, there are businesses selling turntables. Why not just get one of those? Bear in mind that my plan here had been to, um, you know, uh, reach the point of being able to send these things out as kit sets all over the world. I was actually trying to build a product here. But I realized I was out of my depth. I couldn't just keep on throwing throwing more money at this. I had to actually start trying to make some money out of this concept or out of something else. But um, I still had some money in the bank. So I thought, well, um, I'll buy a turntable. In the end, um, 
the one that I got, which I think you've seen on on uh, on screen, um, was I think it was about four thousand Australian dollars, which is about kind of four and a half thousand New Zealand, and then I had to um, add um, a significant amount um, to get it shipped over. It actually cost like. I think it was about $500 to get it shipped because this thing is heavy. It's like 30 kilos. Um, and then I had to pay the tax. And so by the time I got it, it was like the best part of like, I, don't know, I think it was over $6,000 at that point uh, that I did pay for this thing. And um, to this day, I still it still hasn't made me a single cent. Um, but it has facilitated a great deal of experimentation. And so for that, I am grateful. Um, yeah. So that's the sad tale of how I failed uh, at building Tintable hardware. But... That isn't the end of that story. There are new chapters yet to be written, and um, I will elucidate... Uh, on that subject sometime very soon.